Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Hey, yo, Dev, what's up? What's up? How's it going? Um, It's going pretty good. It's going pretty good. I actually had a, a realization about myself this past week that's okay. been nice for my productivity. <laughs> so I realized I don't have any self-control. I laughed it <laughs> just completely. Um, you know, you try to get to work every day and then like, oh, you pick up the phone. Oh, check Facebook, check Twitter, whatever it is. And realizing like how much is like getting away in my of my productivity. And it was funny because I I have an iPhone um, for you Android users, but uh, on the iPhone, it has something called screen time um, to where you can look at how much time you spend on your phone, where you're spending all of your time. And when I saw that I was spending a whole like hours a week on social media, I was like, something has to be done. (laughs) So um, I used this iPhone feature that added limits time limits to how much I could be on any given app per day. So like even the internet, because I I will find websites, I will find discussions that I will spend hours reading. So like I limited my Facebook time, my internet time, uh, Twitter time, all of that to five minutes a day for each app. Oh, wow. Okay. And once I hit that limit, like the phone will actually kind of block you. Now you can say ignore it for like 15 minutes, but it's just kind of like, it makes you feel bad a little bit. Yeah. A little guilt and shame. (laughs) Yeah. It's a little guilt. Like, oh, you, you've reached your limit. You want to ignore it? I'm like, nah. Okay. (laughs) But to take it a step further on my computer, I actually downloaded this app called self-control to where, um, like, if it's a time period that I'm supposed to be working, you list the sites that you want to block and then you start the app and you cannot go to them. So it's like, I have no choice. I have nowhere to go. Not my phone, not my computer. And I'm in hecka productive this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a lot of hours now freed up to, <laughs> to do some work. Yes. Oh, my God. Media. I made so much progress on my dissertation. <laughs> <You> just, <laughs> oh, that my God. I actually might finish this funny. thing. <laughs> that's too funny. I mean, at least, you know, shout outs to you for realizing the uh, some, you know, we all have limitations and some weaknesses, you know, and yeah. realize social media was wonderful for you. So you, you made some adjustments and, and you know, I, it's funny because, yeah, it's like technology has been the obstacle, but you could also, you're also using technology to combat technology. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, it's just, I, it was a way to procrastinate. Like I get, I get stressed when it's time to write. It, it just my anxiety just go through the roof. Mm-hmm. And I realized how often I used my phone as a way to just kind of give up. Like, cause I, it would just be like a natural tendency. Like I might be in the middle of a sentence that I just cannot work out. And my first instinct would be to grab my phone. But because I had reached my limit, I'm like, 
Uh, I guess I'm gonna have to work through this. Work out this sentence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. So yeah. Well, hopefully, yeah. Other people. I'm sure you're not the only one in that boat, especially when it comes to our listeners and stuff. So hopefully, you inspire some of our listeners to take that leap too. And hopefully, know, put some limitations on it. You know, I realized over. I think probably over these past couple of months or so. I'm really like, you know, I'm not like a huge social media user. And I've realized that like, if it wasn't for like BHD, I probably would really just close all my accounts. Mm-hmm. I, I just get like really like kind of over it. You know what I'm saying? When yeah. I go on it, it's kind of like, you know, some things I like looking at that are funny, like memes and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. then everything else is like, uh, it just kind of frustrates me. Like, I don't want to see this. I don't care about this. La, la, la. And I feel like a lot of people, you know, this is just my take, people post. I just feel like even people that post a lot of personal stuff, I just feel like a lot of people post, like, their insecurities on social media. If they do, they do. A lot of people do. But, you know, it's kind of like bonding through sharing insecurity. Because, you know what I'm saying? That's the way I see it. Uh, I guess. I just feel like, I don't know. It just be it just be too much for me. And I'm like, you know, BHD is what can, keeps me on it. But if it wasn't for BHD, I'd probably go on a nice stint where I'm just like, all right, I'm going for a minute. I mean, um, you are very focused in your approach to social media. Like, yeah. I don't see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really business keep it in, keep it out. You know what I'm saying? I don't try to do a lot of other stuff. But yeah, it's just like, you know, I'm kind of over it at this point. Yeah. And it's probably just because, you know, we had social media for all these years. But um, but yeah, I feel you. You know, mm-hmm. I feel you. So it's good, good, good. Get that work done. Get that dissertation done. So... You can be on out of there. Yes, I can be like Dr. Todd, <laughs> Connor. Oh, that's too funny. What's been going on with you? Um, nothing much. You know, you know, this week pretty similar to all the past weeks. Narrowing down, working on the search, teaching, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, you know, I've been working out trying to eat right you know trying to be healthy in in 20 uh, in 2019 on a good note for these next couple months yeah so i could come in 2020 you know real freshed and and good to go it's crazy because when this episode we will literally we will have like three months left in the year yeah which is crazy i feel like it just started and this is episode 90 so we will be 10 episodes away from Episode 100. Yeah. Still got to figure out. And we need suggestions from y'all. If y'all have any cool ideas or anything we should do for episode 100. So what, what would that be? What would that put us? Let's see. Probably at the end of this month, we'll be at 94. Then November to 90. So yeah, that'd be like probably mid-December where we'll hit the 100th episode. So, mm-hmm. so that'd be fun. Um, we got to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's really a big deal. You know, when TV shows hit 100, like they get syndicated. Like what what we get? <laughs> something big. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll yeah. put a uh, um, a Venmo or Cash app out there, and our listeners can contribute. You know, I to know. the celebration. <laughs> yes, yes. Actually, they have this platform called Pat- uh, Patreon or something. I've like heard of that. What is that? It's like this. Uh, like website where if you know you might have podcasts you might have projects you might have like documentaries or whatever it is but like you're offering something to the public you do it for free but if people want to like contribute to the cause they can oh okay 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 might be something we look into for our 100th episode <laughs> <laughs> <That's funny. sighs> alright we got some um, couple old lord news stories for this week I'm sure 
We do. We do have a couple of stories. All right, so, let's get into it. Okay. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... question Ty how do you feel about flying uh you mean just flying in the plane and stuff yeah 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 I feel I'm okay with it you know not uh, usually my most favorite activity but I don't have any crazy nerves or anxiety around it okay well if you were on the plane with this woman I'm pretty sure you would so a passenger on a plane um coming from China um, at, after they were boarding, she decided that the plane was too stuffy for her and that she needed a breath of fresh air. So oh, she no. opened the emergency oh, exit door god. while they were on the plane. Oh <laughs> my god. That is insane, yo. <laughs> and of course, you know, it's better that she did it while they were still on the ground because oh, that would have okay. been tragic yeah. in the air. Uh, but uh, it delayed the flight for like over an hour. I bet um, it did. Yeah. <laughs> yo, that's why. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that it happened while they were on the ground because if you do that in the air, you know, I'm sure it. It, it gets crazy. I don't yeah, know. I mean, people wouldn't survive. Do you remember that um, Southwest flight last year where one of the windows cracked open and like yeah. it almost sucked a woman out? Just yeah, think about if that, that entire door was open. It, it, yeah. yeah, the pressure and all that stuff. And yeah. I'm not an engineer, but I'm sure it'd be nothing be good from that. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, so this next story, I didn't spend a lot of time on social media, but every time I did, like my blood pressure just shot through the re- roof because I was so pissed. So this past week was the start of the Amber Geiger trial, the Dallas cop who mm-hmm. shot Botham Jean in his home. And listening to like her defense or reading about it, because I didn't I couldn't even watch the video. I don't want to see her crying about the fact that she killed somebody else in their mm-hmm. home. But she she said she was scared uh, because she heard shuffling in what she thought was her apartment um, instead of retreating. And maybe call him back up. She opened the door and saw a quote silhouette in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, she saw somebody moving around, and you know, this is you know her. Th- she feels so threatened. Her instinct. So she pulls her gun and tells the silhouette, "Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands." And that the silhouette started moving toward her aggressively. She feared for her life, so she shot someone in their apartment in self-defense. Yes, this is so this is so dumb all around. Um if she don't get jail time, I'm gonna be very livid, I'll tell you that. 
I'm sorry, Dallas. Woo, they they gonna have to prepare because I, if I was pro, if I was down there and they find that woman not guilty, I promise I'd be in the streets my damn self because oh, this this is so ridiculous. Like, so what you're telling me is you can come into my house unannounced is not yours. Off duty, not even I'll, a call like while you're on duty. You know what I'm saying? And tell me you fear for your life incorrectly entering my house and therefore can kill me in my own home. Mm -hmm. I don't that just it's it's so ridiculous to me that if they find this woman not guilty, I promise I I will riot from um, Peoria, wherever the (laughs) heck I am at that time, because I just I would not be able to take it. No, there's no way. There's no way. I mean, I'm not going to say there's no way because the way this country is set up. I wouldn't be surprised, but this is, it just better not happen. This go around. You know what I'm saying? The positive thing is that the jury is rather diverse. Okay, excellent. It has, I think, like maybe four African Americans. I think it, I think there were like two or three white people, which I mean, that shouldn't matter, but it does. And I'm actually surprised that the prosecutors allowed there to be a, uh, diverse jury because uh, usually, I mean the defense because usually they try to strike um, racial minorities and etc. Maybe it's a case of um, you know, sometimes I think I don't know who we had on before when we I think it was one of the, some, one of the lawyers we've had on. I can't remember one specifically but they said that it's important that it's all about who they have, you know, for at least defense attorneys or prosecutors, whoever to um the pool of availability. And so mm-hmm. maybe there's just a case that, hey, a lot of people of color was like, nah, I'm going to accept this oh, jury I, duty. <laughs> this is my civic responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's five black jurors, five mm. Latino and Asian jurors, mm. and two white jurors. Mm. Yeah. This, yeah. <laughs> I must say, I'll be super shocked if she gets a not guilty. Like, so shocked. Like, that. Everything is in a favor to, to to have justice be served in this case. So um, we're going to hope on that. And, and those those little white tears just shouldn't work this time around. <laughs> yes, Lord. But yeah, it's been good. I've been avoiding social media because I, I can't read no more about that without getting. Yeah. And it, it did, they said she was like sexting and stuff, too, like oh, shortly yeah. after and all this craziness, man. Oh, yeah. So that's so this is what contradicts her claim that like she was so tired that she just had no idea what was going on. Yeah. She did have a 13 hour shift, but the entire shift she was sexting with her married partner, police partner. And even as she was like walking in the door, she was sexting him and like she She's, they're trying to say the message is ambiguous, at least the defense is, but like say something like, you know, what's up for tonight or like something to it, those weren't the exact words, but it was something to the effect trying to figure out, you know, what's going on to like meet up for, you know, a little late night rendezvous. Mm-hmm. So the prosecutors are asking, how tired could you be when you were about to sleep with your married um, <laughs> police partner? Mm-mm. Scandalous. But another thing that is contradicting some of her testimony is that I read that, you know, she claimed, oh, this silhouette is dark. She can't see, you know, this silhouette is coming to her. But they said that his body was right where 
you know, he originally was. He was on the couch eating ice cream and then his body was right by the couch. So, yeah, I mean, even when you said um, originally that she said that when she drew the gun, said, put your hands up and then he walked towards her. It's the same thing I ain't believe what happened when the Michael Brown case happened. Yo, it's like there's no way I'm going to believe that you're holding a gun at somebody and they're going to run or walk towards you. you know? yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's just not believable. And the police officers love using that story to justify why they shot. But any human being, a police officer is putting a gun at me. I, there is, I'm trying to run away, if anything. I'm yeah. not running towards that gun. Actually, some of his uh, wounds suggest that he may have been actually trying to, I think the way the bullet went in, it looked like he may have tried to duck or something or maybe that's how he was falling I'm not sure as he was shot but it's just kind of like come on y'all the ballistic look at the ballistics look look at all of this Um, but the jury is sequestered right now to ensure that like they are not um swayed by any media or etc so that's good that's good so yeah justice will be served we're gonna put that out into the atmosphere Yes, put it out there. (laughs) Um, Uh, And speaking of justice being served, this is my last story. Um, But your boy is about to face an impeachment inquiry. Um, So I don't know how anybody could have missed this, but if you missed it, um, over the past week, it was revealed that um, a whistleblower filed a complaint against Donald Trump um, because of a conversation that he had with the president, the Ukraine president, which um, suggested that he uh was going to like withhold aid if he did not if the Ukraine president did not cooperate in helping him to dig up dirt on Joe Biden but i think even beyond digging up dirt is kind of like trying to get Joe Biden and his son in actual trouble mm-hmm. uh with the law so not even just digging up dirt but like it seemed like you know he trying to put Joe and his son in jail or something. I don't know. Which means to me, he also scared to run against Joe if that, if that were the case. Yeah, he, he is. Which is crazy because Joe was actually sliding in the pole. Yes. Like, you worried about the wrong person. But, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the whistleblower filed the complaint. And I think what's crazy is uh, what the craziest thing about this uh, story that I found out was that Trump he knew he was wrong and that they tried to divert like the transcript and et cetera for that call to a separate uh, secure governmental server for like past, it's a code word level something. So something for national security, but they tried mm-hmm. to divert it so it would not be subject to scrutiny. And that come to find out they do that with a lot of phone calls that might not be uh politically uh, correct for the president, but aren't issues of national security. So they shouldn't go on this separate server. So Mm. Democrats are beginning an impeachment inquiry. And um, yeah, that's the T. Yeah. Yeah. Trump is um, he seems very worried, (laughs) especially before the news broke about this. He was like very much trying to combat it and trying to like you know, put out the fire before it actually happened. And he was saying, I'm going to release the, you know, unredacted 
transcripts and all this other kind of stuff, thinking it was going to save him. And then Pelosi still came out and was like, nah, we're going to move forward. And ever since then, he's like, oh, it's a witch hunt and this, that, and the third. But it seems like he's a bit worried. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how this progresses. And the bottom line is, even outside this Ukraine thing, I feel like there's just a lot of impeachable offenses uh, that Trump has committed since his presidency. Um, and so it's just because the things that he says publicly are already worrisome. And I know that a lot of the things that he probably says behind closed doors with other folks uh, is, is, is just going to be even way worse than what he says in front of the camera. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more evidence that would come out and be like, yo, this guy is bugging. And I think that was the craziest part to me. Trump released that transcript like it was supposed to just like really vindicate him but it actually made it worse because it's just kind of like dude you you really you know this was somebody called it like a mob technique like yeah you didn't outright say you do this for me and I'll give this to you but it's just kind of like you know you're happy with um you know what we're doing for you like you need this a type of thing well (laughs) I'd like you to do a favor for us though yeah because you know what I'm saying like that's exactly they, how it is. They showed, a, I think it was either, it, it might have been The Daily Show, but they showed a clip from The Sopranos to where there was a guy who was on a jury and one of The Sopranos, you know, was trying to intimidate him. So he's like, you know, you seem like a good guy, you know, putting his hand on his shoulder like, you know, I'm pretty sure you have a beautiful family and, you know saying little things like that I know you'll do the right thing when it comes to that jury so it's kind of like yeah it's laudatory it's complimentary but none of this stuff is serious you're you're, you're threatening them in the mm-hmm. nice possible way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we'll see we will see where this goes and we will definitely keep all y'all updated as it progresses and more information comes out but the inquiry has begun. Just um, also be prepared because impeachments don't always work. They have multiple steps that they have to go through. Post-trip. Yeah, this is just like the fact-finding phase right now. And in some ways, you know, this could piss some people off and make them even more likely to vote. So you better be even more likely to vote if you are outraged. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I really don't feel that any information found against Trump will turn his uh, his base away. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope that's not what the goal is for this, because it's not going to happen. Like you said, I think it might actually do the reverse. And so I hope if they're really trying to impeach, they're really trying to impeach. You know what I mean? Yeah. Get him out of there. Not just for like, oh, elections coming up. Let's mess up his base or whatever. Because I highly doubt that's going to be yeah. the case. Yeah. <laughs> uh, man. Um, a couple things. Um, I don't know. Just briefly mention. I don't know if you saw how that Malik Yoba uh, interview where he stormed out. Oh, no. no. Yeah, he was doing an interview with The Root about what was going on. And I guess the guy kind of started asking him a question about the allegations against him. Mm-hmm. And then he pretty much flipped out. Uh, you know, I guess he was like, yo, in the pre-meeting, you know, we said we we're going to keep it on just like the, the movement and not about my personal stuff. And he like kind of un- unhooked his can- uh, his his microphone and you know stood up and then started cursing the guy out and a lot of people it was funny because a lot of people were actually he was campaigning uh they were comparing it to r kelly when he was with gail mm-hmm. and flipping out and because he said the same thing like yo this is my life 
it was like that same clip. And so people were like, uh, that's a little suspect. You know what I'm saying? The, the same response um, that R. Kelly had and Malik Yoba had in this interview in The Root, too. Uh, people are raising their eyebrows like that. That that don't seem right. You know, why would you flip out? And even a lot of people say, like, yo, if you're not guilty, man, you're not guilty. You know, um, you just easily respond by saying, like, yo, it's false. And then, you know, time will tell. You know, a lot, a lot of people in these situations act in a more calm manner, but... He's been very like hush hush. Let's not talk about it. In that interview, he went he went off. So we'll see how that progresses. I'm gonna have to see that. That's yeah, yeah. He was flipping out, man. Um, just similar, very similar to R. Kelly. Then I don't know if you saw this story about a, a black girl in Fairfax, Virginia, who got jumped. Um, like Twelve year old black girl by two or three white boys. Oh yeah, and they cut her locks. Yeah, calling her ugly and all this other kind of stuff. Her her name was Amari, and they had her on the news. You know, she was crying and telling the story. And I, I think she, when she came home, she didn't even tell them what was happening. I think it was her grandmother who realized that her locks were uneven and kind of asked her what happened. And then she proceeded to tell her what happened. And you know, this is like private school. Really smart girl plays the violin, all this kind of stuff, and still getting bullied and a lot of people are questioning like yo where were the adults in this situation like how do you see three boys jumping on a young black girl with scissors cutting the hair calling his names and there's nobody intervening and nobody even said anything until she came home and was questioned yeah. by her grandmother about it it's kind of yeah. insane um so yeah that was just a sad story too but people are pushing for there to be action against either the school or the kids i mean for sure some kind of like suspension or something is warranted yeah. at the bare minimum. Absolutely. <laughs> it's physically assaulting, so uh, physical assault, so you, you shouldn't be any question about that, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I did hear that. Hopefully mm. they investigate that. And it's crazy that you know, she she had to bear that and at such a young age, probably put that in a space to say, like, this is something I deal with and I'm going to carry this. And it wasn't until she was asked about it. Is yeah. it, you know what I'm saying? Those are the types of, yeah. like, at a young age, we are dealing with this. We are putting it into a deep place in the back of our mind and in the back of our hearts. And we carry it with us and it burdens us. And mm-hmm. she, her burden is already, you know, her, twelve her years back old. is becoming heavy at twelve. Yeah, yeah, sad. <laughs> um, so sometimes, yeah, I mean, this is, you know. Uh, you know, putting even, you know, you black parents, we want to put our kids in the best schools, but sometimes, man, it's just like, geez, Louise, all these private school, you know, white kids doing that kind of stuff. It's like you got to be kind of extra cautious and, and making sure that your kid is all right in some of these environments for sure. You know, the education yeah. is great, but the social aspect. Um, could be could be troublesome because yeah I think you're right like you said the scary part is like if her grandmother didn't notice like she would have just kept that inside you know who knows how that would have bothered her uh, as she moved forward but but yeah um, uh, that was it and then you know shout out to Jarrell Jerome winning um, an Emmy for him playing uh-huh. Corey Wise and When They See Us the Netflix special about Central Park Five Exonerated Five. Um, that was a really special moment in, you know, modern black history, seeing that happen. He definitely deserved it for sure. Because he yeah. killed that. He killed that role. Yeah. <laughs> he killed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so I know you said last week you got your teas. Have you been able to try it? I did. And I have to say I was not disappointed. First of all, I was happy to be able to use my new tea device. <laughs> I hadn't ordered any loose leaf tea in like the six months to a year that I had that device. 
you saw you guys saw it on Instagram if you looked. Uh, but the tea was actually really good. It, first of all, when I when it arrived, I just was like, okay, let me smell it. I was about to go to the gym. Like I was like, I had like 10 minutes to get where I was going to get, but it smelled so good that I <laughs> rooted on the spot. I had <laughs> And I was like, oh, this, I ain't going to lie. This, this going to sound so like, but it smelled like some Kool-Aid or something. It smelled so good. <laughs> it did smell good. Now the tea smell amazing. That, Cause yeah, they have it in a little container. So when you open it, you get the aroma and mm-hmm. it's like, oh, oh, I got to try it. Like it's Yeah. Good. So I like brewed it on the, spot and okay so similar to you I'm now on a new health kick uh I'm doing the keto diet uh to where I completely cut out carbs so I didn't get to try the shmoney but John did and he said it is absolutely delicious Yo, almost yeah, the honey because I got the crime honey, the vanilla infused. Uh-huh. And all I gotta say is that it's a problem. <laughs> like, like it literally makes me just want to just take a spoon and just put it, you know, dip it in and just eat it raw, just like that. It's a really good honey. Yeah. Um, so you gotta, you know, yeah, watching carbs and trying to be healthy, I make sure to maintain, you know, the right proportions. But yeah, that that stuff is a little bit too good. Uh, so yeah. Everybody <laughs> should try it out. And so for those of you who don't know why we're talking so highly about these teas is because this episode is sponsored by Ivy's Tea Company. It's a black-owned, hip-hop-inspired herbal tea company that, perverts, that provides herbal tea and herb-infused honeys for the culture. Um, so again, if you're a fan of holistic health, like Daphne and I are currently, and you're tired of whitewashed teas, you can visit ivystea.com to order some unique hip-hop-inspired flavored teas like Daphne mentioned Shmoney, which is a type of honey, Crime, which is a vanilla-infused honey, Nips Tea, Red Bone, Side Piece, and all these loose-leaf-flavored fla- loose uh, loose teas. And on top of that, one of the reasons why Daphne and I have been also been able to indulge in so many of these teas is because BHD has a discount code, BHDPOD, where you receive 30% discount on your order for a limited time only. So you want to hurry up and do that because only a couple weeks left. So go ahead and try this tea. Support a Black-owned business. Use a discount code BHDPOD to get 30% off your order today. And outside of that, um, you know, today's guest is a very special guest as well, who we have on the podcast is Dr. Lena Green, um, a clinical, licensed clinical social worker in New York City and psychotherapist, uh, where we bring her on today to talk about what her work that she specializes in, which is fatherhood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's an important topic because when we think about fathers or we talk about fathers, I won't lie. Like a lot of times people think about them as like secondary parents. They think about them as uh, if they think about them as at all. And I feel like there are a lot of like myths and misconceptions about black fatherhood. Um, So, yeah, she has a very important job um, because she focuses on supporting fathers Mm -hmm. and supporting parents um, as they try to build healthy relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, and her work with the Akira Center, all really interesting stuff and much needed, you know, and also shout out to the folks at December 26th, her podcast, who, you know, recommended her to us. Um, She was on there not too long ago and we were like, oh, for sure, got to bring her on. So shout out to the producer over there, Demarcus, and of course, Delisha for recommending Dr. Lena Green so that we can have the opportunity and the privilege to bring her on and share with our audience as well, because I think you guys will definitely learn a lot like Daph said about, you know, parenting practices and definitely black fatherhood and some of the unique experiences with this particular population. 
So without further ado, we can hop into it and we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. For today's episode, we tackle dangerous myths and misconceptions about black fatherhood by interviewing Dr. Lena Green, a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist in New York City who specializes in fatherhood, trauma, and parent-child bonding. During our conversation, we discuss the realities of black fatherhood, as well as the experiences of young dads as they navigate parenthood and issues such as paternal perinatal depression. We also discuss her organization, the Akira Center, which offers counseling to fathers and support on building healthy co-parenting relationships. Then we close by having conversation about the importance of black therapists to the well-being of our community and provide advice to individuals interested in seeing or becoming a therapist. Welcome, Dr. Green. I am doing fantastic and excited to be with you all today. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. Green is a licensed clinical social worker and a psychotherapist who works in New York City. And she's here to talk to us today about some of her expertise and the work that she does in the city centering around um, social work, but mainly fatherhood programs and co-parenting and things along those lines. So, you know, this is a topic that we've discussed a few times on this podcast. So we're glad to have you on to get your get your expert insights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Delighted. All right. <laughs> so, you know, the first question that we generally ask our guests is just to uh, ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'll listen, tell your li- our listeners a little bit about yourself as well. To who, who is Dr. Green? Yeah, so thank you. Um, so as you shared, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, um, psychotherapist. I also consider myself a fatherhood practitioner. Um, and I'm sure that that's sort of a new term for most people who are not sort of in the realm of, of, of working with parents. Um, and I'm also a professor. And um, I'm also what I like to think is uh, my nieces and nephews favorite auntie. So, (laughs) yeah, I love being an auntie, too. (laughs) Um, So, you know, you have a lot of different hats that you carry. And last year you earned your Ph.D. from the NYU Silver School of Social Work. And, you know, I was actually wondering um, because I know a few social workers and many of them practice with their MSW. And one thing I was wondering is what motivated you to earn your doctorate, especially since you you could practice as a social worker with the MSW? Sure, that's a great question. Um, And I think one of the most important things um, was being committed to academia. So um, for many years, um, you know, after I graduated with my master's degree, I had always, you know, continued to find myself in academia in some way, shape or form. So I I have done um, two post-master's certificates, um, done some training, uh, you know, at various universities throughout New York City um, and continue to do, you know, online trainings to sort of keep my knowledge up and keep my practice fresh. Um, And so I decided actually back and I want to say either 20, yeah, 2012, um, I had actually applied initially to get my PhD from a, another university um, and was uh, not accepted. And so I had taken some time off at that point in time and really started uh, my ministry of working with fathers um, part time, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit, um, but also just felt really committed to, you know, just sort of increasing the knowledge base around what it means to work with work with parents, um, working in a pregnant parenting realm, working with families and making sure that 
responsible fatherhood was a part of the conversation, but I knew that I needed another platform in order to do that and felt like academia was the way to, was the way to go. Um, and also to you know get some mentors that could help me further my research, further my understanding and deepen my practice. Um, and also just you know wanted to add to the number of, of black doctors that we see there. I, I remember you know my experience um, in going to three different universities in New York City and not really having any professors of color. You know, I, I can count and sort of remember all the professors of color that I had. Um, and so that was also, um, uh, you know, a catalyst for me getting getting my doctorate. And, um, you know, it's, it's a choice that, um, you know, has been, you know, phenomenal for me ever since, you know. So even when I step into the classroom now, um, you know, whether it's as a guest lecturer or coming in um, to teach a portion of a course um, for another colleague, um, or, you know, teaching a course for myself, you know, as, as the only or as a leading professor, you know, I still have students come up to me to say, I've, I've been in this program for a year. I've been in this program for two years and haven't seen a professor of color yet. So that's really important to me is making sure that we increase our visibility, especially um, in schools that are predominantly white. You know, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, I find that even sometimes just being, uh, you know, I, I think that the reasons you gave is a lot of the reasons why a lot of things, some faculty of color go into academia and higher ed. And then it's also this kind of, you know, what is the double burden of like, you are the only one, but then you also probably get asked a lot for like service and stuff like that, um, or, or, you know, get a lot more attention from students of color uh, because you're fulfilling that that need for them because you want to be there, you want to be visible. But I think sometimes you can be pulled in a lot of different directions in those spaces. Yes, absolutely. Um, even some of my mentors, um, you know, two of um, who are on my uh, committee um, were, you know, really overtaxed. Um, and even, you know, me coming in um, as a, you know, a new doctoral student um, and asking to, you know, for those folks to be on my committee, I, I realized that that was also a big ask for them, um, especially coming into NYU and being in the inaugural class for um, the doctorate in social work program, which is really, a, you know, a clinical degree. So um, most definitely, you know, you want to support students as much as possible, but you also want to be careful to not overtax yourself um, mm -hmm. and by saying yes to everything because it's just not possible. So that's a great point. No, I agree. Um, so, so yeah, let's get into your work a little bit um, about, you know, uh, fatherhood. Um, and I think, you know, it's important for a lot of reasons, but I want to hear, you know, why you decided to take this route and, 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 um, look more closely into fatherhood and provide resources and services to to black fatherhood. Um, so what is your overall, you know, your journey into getting into this area and why is it important to you? Yeah, so um, my journey, I think, started uh, shortly after after graduate school, getting getting my master's degree. Um, and I ended up working at the district attorney's office uh, in New York City. And I interestingly enough had several clients who were uh, men who were victims of domestic violence. Um, and I use that term, you know, uh, sort of loosely because that's not how they would describe themselves. Um, they were, you know, on the receiving end of an assault um, and had not called, you know, the authorities. Um, someone, someone else calls, whether it was a neighbor or a child or, you know, someone else witnessing um, outside of the home. And so I sort of began to work with some of the, some of the fathers in, in that space um, and seeing them weekly or sometimes twice a week for, for mental health services. And what I learned was that they had a lot of anxiety about parenting without their partner for the first time. Um, and sometimes, you know, when you when you are uh, involved with the criminal justice system, sometimes you don't have choices about, you know, 
how how a case moves forward, particularly in domestic violence cases. Um, those cases can move forward even without the cooperation of the person who has been victimized. Um, and so that was sort of the beginning of, of my work with dads. And so I had a couple of fathers in particular, um, one, of, one of whom um, had a really just challenging time with co-parenting and decided, um, you know, after a year, two years of trying post-incident, um, that he would move out of the home. And that sort of spiraled you know, out of control in terms of what was happening with, with his access to his children, what was happening with him with regard to child support in court. Um, one of the children, uh, there were two children in the home, um, one of which he was the biological father of and the other not. And so that had also posed some challenges within the court. And so I started sort of a journey of better understanding how the court saw these cases, um, understanding that, you know, the child support system and the family court system were two very separate systems, but also worked together. Um, so that sort of sparked it. And... Following that, I actually ended up working for um, a pregnant parenting program. And during my time there, the focus was on supposedly on the family, right? So when we're talking about serving families um, or family first mentality, I found that that was it was actually quite the opposite. And all of the focus was on mother and baby. And it was very focused on maternal child health. And sort of dads were sort of casually mentioned um, or casually taken into consideration. And knowing my experience with my in my previous work, knowing how important a, you know, including being father inclusive was, but also how much dads wanted to very much be a part of this, but really found themselves locked out of quite a few systems. Um, so whether that was at school, uh, whether that was at court, um, whether that was in, you know, access to services and just sort of treated really unfairly, I thought, um, in terms of how women were treated. And so that was sort of my entry into working with fatherhood. Um, and then shortly after that, um, I would say at around 2012 is when um, the Akira Center was born, which is my uh, organization that I founded. It's a nonprofit community-based social service agency. Um, and it was born out of that need to really be able to serve fathers and have a father's first uh, focus and mentality. Yeah, you know, a couple of things came to mind. Um when you were talking about this and, and one was uh, you briefly kind of brushed over, but I kind of want to just, cause I'm sure my listeners may have the same question um, when you said, uh, you know, domestic violence uh, um, with, with the men and how they wouldn't identify it that way. Can you um, explain that a little bit more? Um, did it look differently than the traditional ways we think of domestic violence? Typically, we know that uh, um, women are usually per portrayed as the victims more so. But we like you just know, like you just said, that it happens to men as well. Um, so I just want to have a conversation or just hear your perspective on that, because I'm a little curious. Yeah. Um, so I found that, you know, in my work with the men and, and I'm not talking about like one or two men, I'm talking about, you know, a substantial number of men who are on the receiving end of, of um, violence at the hand, at the hands of their partners, um, you know, and we can call it intimate violence or domestic uh, domestic violence and intimate partner violence. But, um, you know, it was very interesting to hear their perspective. Um, they were not comfortable with um, using the term domestic violence. They would use terms like, you know, she has a hand problem or, you know, she's aggressive. Um, but, you know, I guess 
thinking about it in terms of gender, you know, we, we use that term very um, specifically when we're talking about, you know, someone being victimized and being the being the receiving end of intimate partner violence. And the men just really didn't see it that way. They, they really felt like um, they were either trying to protect themselves um, or were just sort of tolerating what was happening in the home, but really didn't identify as a victim and wasn't really comfortable with, with, with those terms. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of that was sort of gender based um, when we're thinking about, um, you know, thinking about men being strong and being able to tolerate a lot. And so I think that some of the some of the uncomfortableness or some of the shame, I think, even uh, was attached to, you know, not wanting to be seen as a victim, if that makes sense. No, no, it does. No, thank you. Thank you. Speaking of discussions that we don't have about uh, Black fatherhood, um, after reading a little bit about your work and your background, um, I learned about the term uh, paternal perinatal depression. And, you know, as a woman, I've heard about postpartum depression. But before, you know, reading more about your background, I had never heard of that concept. Mm -hmm. So can you discuss that a little bit more, like the potential risk factors and how that also, like, I guess, shapes uh, fathers, um, how they navigate fatherhood or parenthood? Yeah, so thank you for for saying that. It's um it's a it's a fairly new area of research that's still developing um and in fact when I was sort of looking at um, the word, you know, the term paternal perinatal depression, there was sort of a lot of discrepancy in, in the literature about it as well. But, um, you know, similar, very much similar to um, postpartum depression, but really starting in the perinatal period, right? So starting during pregnancy um, and, you know, working with a lot of dads, under, understanding, you know, from my experience that there was some anxiety about becoming a father um, that we don't discuss. Um, I think, um, one of the things that we don't think about in terms of folks becoming parents is is that, you know, most pregnancies are not planned. Right. And so um, and a lot of times, you know, guys don't necessarily have a choice in terms of, you know, how the pregnancy may or may not move forward. Um, and so, you know, if folks are not in a committed relationship or not in a long term relationship or plan to be in a long term relationship, there can be a lot of um, anxiety around that as well. It could be a lot of anxiety around. Am I prepared and ready to be a father? How am I going to support this child? Um, for many of the men that I work with there, um, they haven't had, you know, solid examples of fatherhood um, or very little um, examples of fatherhood in their lives. And so, you know, are they able to live up to being, you know, a quote unquote good dad um, wanting to be involved, but not really sure, you know, how to go about doing that. Um, also, some of the things that that put them you know, at risk are also, you know, previous um, uh, a previous diagnosis um, of depression or sometimes, you know, undiagnosed. So having struggled with depression or anxiety earlier in life or some other mental mental health challenge. Um, and, you know, it comes out, I think, in, 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 in slightly different ways um, for men. So for men, you'll see something a little bit more um, along the lines of sort of, you know, angry outbursts or, ir- excuse me, irritability or frustration. I don't know why I couldn't get that out. Um, you see a lot more risky behavior. Um, And when I say risky, it can mean anything from, um, you know, drug use to, you know, more risky hobbies um, to, you know, driving, you know, uh, 
more under the influence or something like that. Um, also, I see a lot of guys who, you know, work quite frequently um, to sort of avoid having the conversations um, about, you know, preparation for parenthood. And then um, also, too, right, we, we, you know, in the world of healthcare, we do a lot of preparation, particularly, you know, during the perinatal period, we do a lot of preparations with preparation with moms. And so we help them get ready for pregnancy. We help them to think about what it means to be a mom or to become a mom. We have, uh, you know, prenatal classes to support them. Um, we have, you know, mommy and me classes to support um, developing social relationships for moms and babies. But we just don't have those kinds of things available to fathers. And so um, when we're thinking about all the things that sort of help parents prepare in some way, shape, or form, we don't really do that for men. And I think that's really just an untapped area, um, uh, you know, in a way, and thinking about ways that we can create a supportive environment, you know, we haven't done a good job societally um, with doing that. Hmm. Yeah. And so another question comes to mind as you're talking about this is, you know, I'm like language that um, is used, um, you know, like in the one instance how you say like uh, uh, the the men typically, you know, run away from language of, of domestic violence or being perceived as a victim. And so so trying to get them to maybe understand the situation, you know, do you would you use different language to to get them to, I guess, see the bigger picture of what's going on, or even like when you're talking about <clears throat> some of the um, either uh, risky behaviors or irritability or, or anxiety, you know, um, are they are they using these terms or are there ways you help them, you know, I guess, uh, I guess, uh, use the terms themselves, like anxiety, stuff like that. Do they accept those terms um, personally or, or is like there's other ways to go around to talk to them to help you still get to the same goal mm -hmm. with, with maybe using different language and terminology? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think language is important, um, but also, we, you know, we have to also use what we have. Right. So we mm -hmm, want to also mm -hmm. be respectful of, you know, how clients see themselves um, and, and really just help them relate that back. You know, some of the behaviors relate that back to how folks are feeling. Right. And so part of it is um, sort of helping to sort of uncover this conspiracy of silence and shame that I think a lot of men sit in um, with regard to, you know, symptomology and how they're feeling or, you know, the experiences that they've had around trauma or depression and anxiety. So helping them sort of work through that. Um, and also, you know, helping them, you know, think through, um, you know, what those ba what barriers are, right? So I think with regard to men and, and regard to cultural norms, there's this um, norm about you sort of toughing it out, toughing out an illness, right? And it doesn't necessarily have to be mental illness. It could be, you know, anything, right? Like, you know, getting someone, getting a guy to go to the doctor um, because he feels like he can tough it out or shake it off, um, you know, even addressing it in, in just that small way. So really, you know, using language that, that is relatable um, for guys, um, you know, asking them, you know, thinking about what, what it costs them, right? And also relating that back to their families as well. Um, we, you know, we also talk about sort of false perceptions um, and, and previous experiences that they may have had. And then also talking about access, right? And, and, and also thinking about, you know, what it means to be healthy and helping folks to sort of define health and wellness for themselves. And so while, while we may have 
um, some, you know, overall definitions about what good good health is for a man, right? So it's thinking about, um, you know, a state of physical, mental, and social well-being that really enables someone to, um, you know, realize their their best aspirations, right, in everyday life um, and reach their their full potential. And so it's helping people think through that. You know, what are the things that that help you get to that space? And if those things are lacking, really starting there. So you know, social work we sort of call that you know starting where the client is. So you know, really mm-hmm. using that language and reflecting back where people are and helping them to tie that back to some of the behaviors and some of the symptoms that they're, they're feeling. Mm, insightful. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you were the founder of the Akira Center. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about the center, the work you do there, and you know why it was important for you to create this space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, we are actually a center without walls. <laughs> um, so we usually um, sort of rent space or have, you know, guest space um, in, in a particular area. Um, so we actually started out um, as, a, as a nonprofit community-based social service agency um, connected to a church, my home church, actually, First Corinthian Baptist Church. Shout out to them in Harlem. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were looking really to... Um, just find a safe space where guys could come and just really talk about, you know, some of the things that some of the issues and challenges that they were going through as fathers. Um, so one of the other things that that was sort of unique about us was that one, we had an emphasis on mental health. Um, we had an emphasis on working with um, fathers of color, particularly black and Latino fathers. Um, and we also came from sort of a children first mentality and thinking about the importance and access to both parents. Um, and we were also not connected to a government agency, um, which meant that we had some flexibility in the kinds of services that we could provide. So while we partnered with um, organizations such as um, the New York City um, Office of Child Support Services, or we you know, partnered with uh, small business services that could come in and talk about finances and budgeting. Um, you know, we we were able to do that because we were connected, you know, like I said, to, uh, you know, not not any government agency. Um, but along those lines also came some challenges, particularly around funding. Um, and so we we have been and can really continue to remain um uh, you know, an organization that really is just runs runs on that, what I like to say, community love, right? So people have heard about our program, heard about the things that we do. Um, we're, we're training, um, we're building relationships, we're building partnerships um, that promote family resiliency. And because of that, um, you know, folks have really, you know, poured into us financially um, and have been able to support us and help sustain us. Um, so that's what we've been doing. And we, we've had the opportunity to have some really incredible partnerships. Um, so some of the partnerships that I can share with you all um, include um, a partnership again with First Corinthian Baptist Church, um, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, um, which is uh, run by my mentor, Sean Dove. So if you haven't heard about the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, you should definitely check it out. It is an organization that is committed to black men and boys. It's phenomenal. Um, and then we also have a partnership with the Brothers of Omega Sci-Fi here in New York City, particularly the Psy Lambda Lambda chapter. So um, we are, you know, at one point we were running groups uh, weekly um, in cycles. Um, and now sort of we are more events based and also doing some consultations. So, so that's sort of where we are right now. Nice, nice. You know, do, do you have, um, I guess, uh, 
an example, I guess, of like a success story um, from your work with uh, the uh, the Akira Center? Um, you know, some in what ways? You know, sometimes it just helps listeners get a good idea of like what actually can happen. You know, when you have these resources and services out into the community. Yeah, um, we, I have many success stories. Um, so I'll, I'll share. I'll share two with you that I that I think. Um, have been most impactful. And I, I'm also sharing those two because they have also um, given me permission to sort of share their, share their stories um, with the public. Um, so uh, the first is um, a dad who, when he came to first joined our group, um, had not had access to his four-year-old daughter in several months. And so he was really coming in. He was actually referred by a friend um, who knew, you know, who was familiar with the work that I was doing um, and just came in because he was just like, I just need help with, you know, getting connected to my daughter. Like I haven't seen her in several months. You know, the mom is not really working with me. We're having challenges in the in the area of co-parenting. We don't really talk and my daughter's suffering and I'm suffering as well. And so um, we worked with him to make sure, you know, that there were that there weren't any barriers. So one, getting him connected to, you know, ongoing mental health services. Um, we were also able to make sure that he was fully compliant um, with the agreement that he had with the mother of his child. So um, I want to just take a, a quick second to just talk a little bit about child support, because I think um, there, you know, we, there's formal child support that is sort of done through the courts. And then there is, you know, ongoing support that parents have agreed, um, you know, to maintain between one another. And so he was fully, you know, in compliance with that agreement, with the agreement that he had with the mom, but they were having some difficulty, um, you know, sort of just even just communicating in a, in a very basic way. Um, so we were able to get them connected to a service um, that really just focused on helping, you know, like sort of not quite a magistrate, but just more like coaching so that they could actually have an opportunity to work with someone who could get them connected and, ha you know, allow them to speak to one another without sort of, you know, without it being explosive um, and aggressive in the same room. So we were able to do that. Um, and, you know, it took over a year. Um, but he was able to get a, uh, an order in place um, through the family court system where um, he would be able to see his, his daughter um, on a weekly basis. So um, they ended up having getting an agreement um, where he was able to see his daughter once during the week and then on the weekends. And so, you know, just having some consistency in his life for him, both himself and his daughter really helped to make the difference in their relationship and also was able to help uh, make the difference in the co-parenting relationship. Um, so that's one example. Um, another example um, is uh, a father that we worked with. And this example is actually, um, you know, is a testament to sort of some of the things that, that, we, that, that we've done early on, but that continue to sort of resonate with, with fathers that have come and graduated from our program. Um, so this is a dad that came to us. He was like part of the, one of the first um, cohorts that came to join us. And our program um, at that point was, I think, 12 weeks um, for the cycle. Um, and during that time, he had had some challenges, um, you know, with the mother of his child. Um, and three years later, or maybe four years later, um, it took him that long to, you know, file to be the uh, custodial parent. And it took quite a long time, but he actually was able to get it. So I was able to connect him again with um, some services with folks in the community um, and get him, you know, a good, essentially a good lawyer, um, and who was able to sort of help him. And now he's, now he has full custody of, of his son. So, um, nice. you know, some, 
some case examples, you know, some, some cases, you know, are resolved a little bit quickly. Others take a little bit of a longer time. But I think the most important thing is, you know, staying consistent, sticking it out and knowing that, you know, this process is not always easy. Um, and we do our best to encourage our dads um, throughout the process to, you know, just see it through. That's awesome. Um, so going back to uh, research and your role as both an academic and a practitioner, practitioner, I was wondering um, how you use your ability and skill set as a researcher to develop practical community resources. You know, what's that process like of using research to inform real life application? Mm hmm. Um, so I want to say <laughs> I don't actually consider myself a researcher, <laughs> um, uh, you know, just just in terms of thinking about folks who, you know, are really heavy into research. I just really want to say that I respect the things that they do. Um, and really, you know, there's I think there is um, uh, practice that informs and then research, research informed practice and practice informed research. Um, so I think for me, because I'm a clinician, um, it's a little bit of both. Um, so taking the things that I've learned and looking at the areas where um, we aren't doing so well and really just thinking about best practices, right? So what are some of the areas that um, really need to be, to be developed? Um, what are some of the areas that are um, just sort of new and up and coming? Um, what are some terms that we really need to look to look a little bit more and understand a little bit more? Um, and then thinking about, you know, how this informs, you know, whatever research, again, and I use that term lightly, I will engage in in the future. Um, and thinking about, you know, what partnerships uh, may be helpful to, to, to getting to the goal. Um, so I'm not sure that I fully answered your question, <laughs> but I, I hope I no, just touched and on like it you said, I, Okay. <laughs> yeah, like you said, I think there's research-informed practice and you know, using your practice or using your practice as a source of resource, uh, as a source um, to improve it for your clients. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I would just add to that, you know, sort of thinking about some of the, the themes or trends that I see in my clinical practice and then going back and, and, and seeing, you know, what research is out there, what's already been done, um, that would be helpful to, to, to making sure that I give my, my clients, um, you know, the best care possible. You know, that's, and, you know, I guess switching gears a little bit, right, talking about clients and stuff, too, because I think this is an important conversation to be had when we talk about uh, the black community and, you know, just seeking counseling and, and therapy. Um, you know, one of the questions that comes up sometimes, and I've even had dialogues about this, too, like how you talked about, you know, being um, a, a black professor and how that's important in, in those spaces. And then um, sometimes black folks, when they're seeking out therapists, are looking for, you know, a black therapist or a black counselor, um, somebody that helped him, that understands them, and, and, and rightfully so. Um, so based on your experiences, you know, in the field and, and doing this yourself, you know, how important do you say that is, especially if someone is looking to, I guess, pursue that type of um, help or service, um, you know, is it critical for them to only look for, for a black therapist or is it okay, you know, if they didn't have the, how do they navigate that? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, so we, it already takes a lot of courage, right? We're already dealing with a lot of attitudes and stigma and beliefs, you know, related to psychological openness and help seeking in our community, right? And so when folks are looking for a, a practitioner, I always say, it's not, first and foremost, you want to find someone who is the right fit, right? And just because they're black or just because they are of color um, doesn't necessarily mean that that person is the right fit. So I think 
first and foremost. Um, it's thinking about, you know, who is who fits well with who you are. Um, you know, as a person, and will they be under, able to understand some of those things? Right? So you want to be comfortable with, with your therapist. Um, and I say to folks all the time, you know, sometimes finding a good therapist is like finding a good pair of shoes. You might have to try on a few pair before you find the right fit. Um, so, so don't be afraid to, you know, talk to people over the phone, to peruse their websites, um, to ask them what kind of treatment modalities they actually use and engage in. Um, and especially for, for folks who are just entering therapy for the first time, they may not know and they may have a lot of anxiety about it. Um, and then there may be folks who have had um, some, you know, engage the mental health system at some point in the past. Um, and that have and not had a good experience, right? So we want to be open to all of that. Um, but yeah, if it's important to to have a black clinician, I think you know we there are you know resources that are out there that are available to you. Um, so I want to just give a shout out um, to Dr. Joy and Therapy for Black Girls because there there is um, an excellent uh, that's an excellent resource um, available on her website um, where you can check out you know a host of of clinicians um, throughout the country really. She's really done a great job at cultivating that list. So that's one place that folks can go and look. Um, but, you know, if you're really committed to having a black clinician, I think you can certainly find one, um, especially if, you know, there are several um, areas where folks can go and tap into. Um, so there, there's the Association of Black Social Workers. There's the um, Black Psychologist Network. Um, there's, I think there's also another group called Black Therapists Rock. So there, there are plenty of clinicians that are out there that you can find. It's just taking the time to, 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 to look and invest. Um, and then also knowing, you know, what you're able to afford. Um, speaking of affordability, I guess, what are some of the resources that people can look to, um, if they have little to no health insurance, but they want to take that, uh, step to get therapy? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, most clinicians that I know um, have some kind of sliding scale fee. Um, so they're always, you know, we, most of us have room for clients, um, you know, in our practice who, you know, may not be able to pay sort of top dollar for, for services, right? But that's a conversation and that's something that they should sort of say up front and, you know, have, have some dialogue about that. Um, but I would say, you know, thinking about prioritizing your mental health the same way that you prioritize other things. And so, you know, I'm not sure what it's like in other areas, but for New York City, right, we have a big culture of brunch here, right? And brunch could easily run you, you know, 50 bucks mm -hmm. um, on a <laughs> on a on a Saturday or Sunday, right? And so it's thinking about, you know, it's thinking about budgeting for it and how do I prioritize my mental health? Um, so I sometimes when I'm talking with, with some of my clients and they're talking about, you know, being able to afford therapy, I ask them, you know, and you know, in what ways can you cut back? You know, are there things like brunch that you can sort of cut back from or hanging out with friends or, you know, shopping um, to prioritize your mental health? But I think Again, you know, most clinicians are willing to work with you and to talk about, you know, a price point that that they feel is fair um, that would get you what you need. Hmm. And I guess, you know, one last question around this topic is thinking again from uh, the lens of someone who may not have ever gone to therapy or seek sought any kind of these services. You know, I'm pretty sure sometimes there's a question within of like, hmm, how do I do I need therapy? Like, how do I know if I need to actually go seek help? Um, so is there any advice you can give if someone is thinking about it, but not really sure um, how to pursue that? 
Yeah. Um, so I want to first say, right, that you don't have to necessarily be in a crisis to, to get um, to get therapy. Um, if you're thinking about it, that's a fantastic place to start. And I would say that that's a wonderful way to start the conversation. So sort of getting in touch with a, a clinician that you think would be a good fit for you and saying, you know, I'm not really sure if this is the right time or if I really actually need therapy. And that clinician most likely is going to be open to talking to you about that, right? Like, what are your reservations? So again, starting wh where the client is. And if it's like, mm, you know, these are some of the things that, I, that I'm going through right now, or what, what thoughts have you had about going to therapy, right? Or what, what would that look like? What do they imagine it looks like? Like, um, so I think most most clinicians are more than capable of of helping to you know understand what the expectations of helping clients walk through the expectations of therapy, what they're going to get out of it. Um, and again, it's something that you can try. And if you don't feel like it's a good time for you, you can always you know exit treatment at that point in time. And when you feel like you're ready, you can always come back. So just because you start doesn't mean that you have to stay there. <laughs> that that definitely makes sense. Um, so thinking about uh, this from not the client side, but from the practitioner side, uh, for those who might listen to this interview and say, I really love what Dr. Green is doing. Like, how do I go about, you know, following in her footsteps? Um, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to take a similar career path you know, what traits and characteristics do they need to succeed and thrive in this profession? Well, I think um, one is certainly perseverance <laughs> um, to, to thrive in the profession. But also, I would say most importantly, get connected to a mentor. Right. I can't tell you how important that is, because I don't think that anybody gets to this place, you know, solo. Right. You don't get to, to be in this place that, that, that I'm in, you know, alone. I've had many journey partners along the way. Um, and so I continue to have some incredible mentors, both male and female in my life um, and who come from various walks of life. Right. So I have folks who are mental health clinicians. Um, I have mentors who are psychologists, psychiatrists, psychiatrists and other social workers who help me sort of go along the way. Excuse me. I, I, I did a lot of research. Right. So. Um, and I was also someone who was also very clear very early on in my life that I was going to be a mental health clinician. Um, but understanding, too, you know, the different the, the different paths that you can take to get to this place. Right. So being a psychotherapist, there are a couple of different avenues that you can take to get there. But knowing which one is going to be the best fit for you. Um, I think also, you know, being committed to, you know, raising awareness um, about mental health, um, being able to, to challenge um you know, spaces that um, are, are not yet carved out um, as it relates to, you know, areas of practice, right? There's so much room and so much breadth and width in the field of mental health that there are just so many areas um, to focus on. Um, and so, you know, if there there's a particular space that really speaks to your heart, um, to think about pursuing a, um, a specialization in that area. Um, for me, I knew it was, you know, fathers. I didn't come to that to that um, very early on. Um, trauma really was my focus very early on and working with victims, um, you know, survivors of uh, sexual assault and domestic violence early on. But out of that work um, was birthed my work with and my passion for working with fathers. So, you know, being open to, to, to the road and the journey that this takes you and giving yourself an opportunity to, I guess, just work in different areas of mental health um, and not being afraid to do that. So, you know, working with in a space with, with, with children, maybe working with families, um, working with the undocumented population, you know, sort of, you know, giving yourself some flexibility um, to see where you where 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 um, your skills lie and also the things that really speak to your soul. Um, so those would be the things that I would say. 
Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, you know, as we begin to wrap up, you'd be like to give our, uh, our, our guest an opportunity to, I guess, you know, if there's anything that is still that we didn't discuss, because I know we covered a lot, but there might have been something that you might have wanted to address or still talk about that you feel like it's important for our listeners to hear. Uh, would you like to share anything like that or is there anything on your mind? Yeah, I would just say, you know, um, to, to, to be gentle with ourselves, um, to be flexible and forgiving with ourselves, you know, as a community and as a population, you know, we've endured a lot of historical adversity. Um, and so, you know, from ra- uh, ranging from slavery to, you know, race-based exclusion, um, from healthcare and the educational system. Um, and so, you know, just thinking about, you know, how some of these these um, disparities have really impacted um, our experiences as black folks in this country. Um, and to know that, you know, if you're committed to, um, you know, moving past, um, you know, the legacy of deficit to really just be committed to yourself um, and self-care. And I think um, being mindful of, you know, where your spirit guides you. So. Yes, to self-care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so where can people find you, learn more about your work, your practice, follow you, etc.? Well, they can certainly follow me on Instagram. Um, I am on uh, at Dr. Lena Green on Instagram. Um, and if they want to learn a little bit more about my work uh, with the Akira Center, they can go to akiracenter.com. That's A-K-I-R-A-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. And, and there are ways to reach me on, on both of those platforms. All right. Well, be sure to link um, uh, that stuff when we post this episode on um, on our website and with the, with the blog post. So make sure you guys can get easy access to that information and definitely follow all the great work she's doing. So, so Dr. Green, just want to thank you again for taking the time to come join BHD Podcast and share all the wonderful work you're doing in, com- in the community um, for our for our people. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yo, Dad, what do you think about Dr. Lena Green coming to talk with BHD about all the work she does in the community? Um, I thought it was awesome. I feel like when we talk about parenting, you know, when we talk about uh, perinatal uh, issues or postnatal issues, it's often focused on women, which, of course, uh, women often go through very traumatic experiences um, as they are preparing for children or having children. But if we really want healthy families, if we want uh, present parents, we have to focus on both mothers and fathers. So I appreciate her work. And like I said, uh, I hadn't even considered the idea of fathers having depression related to uh parenthood or relating to the pregnancy so you know it's all very interesting work and I want to look into it more yeah no it is quite interesting and I think like you said when I think about how the system is set up who receives a lot of the attention who receives a lot of the resources and services um, you know yeah a lot of it focus on women and rightfully so but you know if we are trying to we have these conversations about trying to rebuild the black family or you know rebuild the black communities um, yeah there, there needs to be a kind of equal amount of attention on both parties right to to either you know help men with fatherhood like we're helping women with motherhood and issues of anxiety and and being a parent and being responsible for another life um, and, and facilitating or mediating certain issues with relationships with the mothers, if that's the case, and trying to get custody, um, you know, all of that is necessary. 
on yeah. both ends. And I think if we do work just as hard with all parties involved, then at the end of the day, like like she said, it's it, it's a it's a child centered, child focused approach where you know helping both parties. I mean, the children will will reap the most benefits, and they'll be okay in the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She said something in the interview that I thought was really insightful. She said, "You don't have to be in a crisis to you know seek mental health." Uh, counseling and etc. And I think that's really important. I think when we, a lot of people think about mental health, when they think about therapy, they incorrect, it's like a stigmatized thing. You know, they're thinking of like major issues and saying like, hey, you know, maybe the small issue or the situational issue that I'm dealing with is not on the scale of importance to seek out therapy. But like I said, you don't have to be in crisis. Sometimes it's good to just talk to somebody. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that was important because I think, again, people, you know, like say like, oh, man, you know, I, I guess also the stigma attached to going to therapy sometimes um, people are like, oh, I ain't crazy. I'm not this. or you know, I'm not having all these issues. But, you know, there's some things that just on everyday life that, mm-hmm. you know, you might just need to just pro- help somebody just help you process. And mm-hmm. that can I feel like can go long ways um and like she said um and like most people do you know you 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 do it when it's necessary as well you know mm-hmm. it's like if you, you're going to the doctors like kind of okay once you feel better and you're back on your toes you don't need to go to the doctors no more you know mm-hmm. and, and then when you are sick or something again you're not feeling well you go back to them you get your help and you come back so it doesn't even have to you don't even have to think of it like this long term i'm going for the rest of my life or every day or every week it's just like you know i need it right now it's helping me and i can can move forward mm-hmm. so i think so that's important too When I think about the times that I have sought out uh, like counseling, it has always been around like major life transition. So, you know, when I moved to Boston and started my new Ph.D. program um, after I got married and like moved to like a new city in the Midwest. And it's just kind of like, you know, it wasn't long term, but I remember those sessions being like really helpful as I just worked through, you know, major life transitions. So, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. That's good. And I think the one of the last takeaways um, is like, and you kind of mentioned in your question, you know, I, I'm really impressed because when I think about the guests we've had on this podcast, oftentimes they are people who are professionals or people working in the field who are very practical in what they do. And then we have people in academia, you know, primarily do academic stuff, do the research and, and it can have major policy and practical implications. But you most of the time when I think about the guests, most of them, we had a couple who are, you know, can do both. Uh, but most of them are either one, you know, one side of things. And I think she does a really good job at, you know, balancing both like being in the academic world, but still being just as involved in real life mm-hmm. and providing these services and building that really, you know, what BHD, what we try to do is, you know, build that bridge. And I think she is a living example of that uh, between academia and the community. And I think, you know, that's something that I feel like that's something I definitely want to do well as I continue my career. But I think that's something I feel like we should all strive, whoever, people, especially people in academia, um, to continue to to push that envelope a little bit more and, and build these bridges and be a strong resource for the community. 
Mm-hmm. You know what? I think that's actually the beauty of the social work field. Like, I don't know if you remember, but in when I was the first year in the social PhD program, I remember being explicitly told you're a sociologist and not a social worker. And, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of mindset. But when you actually think about like bridging, you know, research or practice based research or, you know, I I just think it's a beautiful thing. So I I love that uh, she has her, you know, hands in all of these different um, pots and, you know, is able to combine them in a way that has a real impact on people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's one of the gripes I've always had with (laughs) sociology, man. It's just like, you know, I think in modern day, in today's time, it's more like let's you know, do the research, let's talk about it. But, you know, the, the beginnings of sociology was you were out there, you know, with the people, you know, mm-hmm. and, and touching the people and and had more of that, you know, social work element, um, which is important. And I think as a field, I feel like we've gotten away from that um, a little bit too much. And we need to realize, like, yo, it's OK to not just solely write papers, but be able to at least understand these papers and be able to apply it, you know, be a liaison or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like, yeah, sometimes like you like the comment you said, starting grad school is like, it's looked down upon when you are trying to take that approach. Mm-hmm. And even kind of mm-hmm. thinking about language, how we talked about with language and, and some of the clients that she deals with. I think that's important. We talk about grad school too, right? Or like, because I feel like a lot of black students or black graduate students, come in with that mindset of especially in sociology like you want to do something that impacts the community but off the jump if you're told like oh yeah this is not what we do here you know it's going to be a turnoff uh, for a lot of and mm-hmm. if you're trying to and I'm just saying this I'm just doing this preachy method because I'm like I know people may be listening oh, how can we increase diversity in our programs how can we k- keep retention well maybe it's not telling them the first day they walk in that what they do is it, it can't be considered social work there's a difference mm-hmm. uh, we should be more welcoming to bridging that gap and saying hey no what you can do here can go- to be taken back to your communities and I'm sure just that change in language will make a difference in the lives of us black folk and others you know I agree <laughs> well, once again, we just want to thank Dr. Green for taking the time to come chat with us and telling us all about her work. You know, make sure you guys click on the links on the post, check it out, follow the work. And maybe even if you're in the area that she is, send somebody, you know, that somebody needs some help or some services, send them her way um, mm-hmm. to the care center and stuff like that. You know, reach out. Uh, you never know what can happen and how many lives can be changed as you heard from the success stories that she shared. Um, other than that, if you haven't yet, follow us on social media. Our handle is at BHD Podcast. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to keep up with all our latest content. You can also email us, bhdpodcast at gmail.com with any ideas, content, interviews, what have you. We're always open and receptive to that. And then you can review and rate us on iTunes. That really, really helps us out. So please go ahead and do that. And after you review us, go ahead and share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.